Okay, let's get started this morning. It's been a long time. So I don't know if any of you even remember where we left off last time. So uh, we've been studying exegetically through the book of Revelation for our guests this morning. And I've been on the mission field for the last two months, two plus months. And so the last uh, message we did was out of Revelation 8. And that's been back around the 1st of September, I believe. And so we're going to pick up today where we left off. We're studying through this very relevant book, a book that's often neglected in modern times or shuffled aside as deep mystical prophecy that cannot be understood. We're working our way through this book exegetically. That means we're not cherry-picking Scriptures and interpreting them out of context, but we're moving through the book from beginning to end to see what God has to say. This book is very important. So much so that at the end of the book, God says, whoever adds to the words of this prophecy will have added to him the plagues written therein. And whoever shall endeavor to take away from the words of this prophecy shall have his part taken from the book of life. And that fittingly is placed not only at the end of Revelation, but to the end of Scripture, the closed canon of Scripture that God gave to man to reveal Himself. And so I believe this week and next week we're going to be in Revelation chapter 9. Then the following Sunday we're going to have a special program here on Sunday. And then the last Sunday of the year, I'm going to pick up where I left off last week sharing the things God did through the missions you support in South Asia. So, um, so many stories to tell from that time. Please continue to keep Ricky in your prayers. He's in Kathmandu. The people from South Dakota have returned home. And uh, Brother Bishnu in, in Kathmandu, James in Bangladesh and the others. And We have some things coming up next year that I'll be talking about in the coming days that we would covet your prayers. A lot of work going on and I'm excited about it. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 8 verse 13 this morning. And I gave everyone an outline. I just try to provide these so you can kind of follow through and then you can take them with you and use them as you study these things. I encourage you to study and not take things as gospel truth just because a preacher behind the pulpit says it, but to search the Scriptures like the Bereans in the book of Acts, to make sure the things you're hearing agree with the Word of God. There's a lot of things in here that I believe can be interpreted properly. I believe the context reveals what's going on. And a lot of things are difficult to understand. And I acknowledge that. And I'm not going to stand on fine details as as, uh, dogmatic truth. And so I try to share with you things that seem to make sense to me through the study of God's Word. And understand that there are things difficult to understand here. But what's not difficult to understand is the God who made us, the God who created us, the God who provides for our salvation, the God who rose Jesus from the dead is coming again to judge this world in righteousness. And that's not a matter to be taken lightly. It's cause for rejoicing for the church and it's cause for fear and trembling for the world. The last verse I read, we're in the middle of the trumpet judgments, okay? The last verse I read was chapter 8, verse 13, before we finished up last time, and it says this. 
And I, which is John, beheld, and I heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth, by reason of the other voices of the trumpet of the three angels which are yet to come. So woe is an expression of warning. It's probably one of the strongest words to be used in a warning. And we have this angel flying through heaven warning the inhabitants of the earth that what is yet to come is far worse than what you've seen already. We've already been through the seal judgments, which were judgments by natural phenomena. And then we see a transition with the sixth seal, which I believe takes place at the mid, near the midpoint of the tribulation period, into judgment by supernatural phenomena. And we see this in the first four trumpets. But now, it's getting a step worse. Or what I would call a rising crescendo of judgment. But what does God do? What God does here in verse 13 is something very important to remember about His character. Something that cannot be said about the gods of men. You know, I spend a lot of time in South Asia. I've been around Hindus, Buddhists, and Muslims many times and for extended periods of times of time in far corners of this earth's uh, far corners of the earth. And they will admit readily to you that the gods exist for their own lust and pleasures. They do whatever they want to do, and we just have to submit. You know, the Hindu gods exist to destroy people. That's why there's no concept of a relationship with these gods. Now, some of you saw when Matthew shared about the mission work in Bangladesh, there was one photo in there of some gods at the Hindu temple that were objects of worship. And it looked like something out of Spongebob. I mean, it was just the silliest looking thing I've ever seen. And people bow down to these images because they believe they represent gods or goddesses. Paul tells us these things are all devils that people worship that exist to destroy. And so the ritual and the worship is meant to appease or to distract. But God of creation, the God of the Bible is not like this. What He does here in verse 13 is something that the gods of men don't do. He warns those about coming judgment. He warns. And the warning, my friends, is an act of mercy. The gods of man-made religion just throw down their judgment without any explanation whatsoever. God doesn't do that. God will never lead you in a direction without telling you why through the Scriptures. And God will never judge you without warning you about the consequences of sin. He does that throughout the Scriptures and He did it through the preaching of Jesus Christ and the apostles. So none of us have an excuse on the day of judgment. None of us can unfairly charge God, well, you didn't warn me, God, if you just warned me. This whole book is a warning. And it's appropriate nowadays, considering the judgment of God we see on our country, to preach it. So this is where we left off, a warning from God, which, my friends, reminds us of His mercy. Turn real quickly to a small book in the Old Testament, Amos, the book of Amos. Hosea, Joel, Amos, the third book in the Minor Prophets. And here we have this great truth re-emphasized concerning God's mercy. It says in Amos chapter 3, verses 6 and 7. Somebody want to read that? Uh, Matthew, you read that this morning? Amos 3, 6 and 7. Shall, shall a trumpet be blown in the city and the people not be afraid? Shall there be evil in a city, and the Lord hath not done it? 
Surely the Lord God will do nothing. He revealeth His secret unto His servants the prophets. So in other words, the prophet is asking some rhetorical questions. A rhetorical question is a question you know the answer to. Shall a trumpet be blown in the city and the people not be afraid? A trumpet was used to warn people of an impending danger. We talked about that when I introduced the seven trumpets. One of the uses. A call to war. A call to warning. When a trumpet's blown in the city or you hear the sirens, people are afraid. Something's wrong. And then it goes on to ask, shall there be evil in the city? This word evil here is referring to the fruits of judgment. Shall there be evil or judgment upon a city and the Lord has not done it? It's the Lord that brings judgment. We scoff at all of these things in modern day times and talk about mother nature and natural phenomena, refusing to recognize that God judges nations. He's always done it. He does it today. He judges their econ- uses the economy against them. He'll judge them with ecology or natural, what we call natural disasters. He'll send nations in to invade. That's been his practice, his consistent practice throughout all of history. But when judgment comes, it's God that does it. But it's the next verse that's interesting. In the context of declaring that judgment is from God, it says the Lord God, in verse 7, will do nothing but... That word could also mean except. That's one of, another meaning for that conjunction there. Except He revealeth His secrets unto His servants the prophets. And then what follows is an entire book of warning to the people of Israel of coming judgment. God is the author of judgment, but He does nothing without revealing that judgment. To reveal that judgment through the prophets is to warn. Nowadays, God's warnings here in the Scriptures are there. It's an eternal testament for us separated many, many years from these specifics. But He also warns through His prophets or preachers. A prophet's role is primarily forthtelling not foretelling the future. So the gift of prophecy in the New Testament church isn't the speaking of the future, it's foretelling God's truth. And so Bible-believing preachers exist in this role today as they warn of God's judgment. God doesn't judge without warning. And I don't mean to get off on a side note, but we can't emphasize how much that shows or reveals His mercy. God is a merciful God. All of the things that will befall this world, I believe very soon after the rapture of God's people, the church, have been warned. All these things have been laid out more than 2,000 years ago because as you can see, many of these events, especially like what we're going to read about here in Revelation 9, were also prophesied 800 years before Christ in the prophet Joel. Some of the exact same things we're going to read about here in Revelation 9 are also described in Joel chapter 2. So the warning's been there for people to read. I remember the stories from the book of Revelation and some of the pictures in my children's Bible when I was a young person scared me a lot. Well, they should. And some of those things are instrumental or were instrumental in turning me or pointing me to the Lord. Warning is issued that we might turn to the Lord. It's not issued to scare us for the sake of fright, but that the fright or the concern might turn us to the Lord and turn us to where we can find safety. So, back to Revelation chapter 9. We have this warning at the end of chapter 8, and now we're getting into the fifth and sixth trumpet judgments in chapter 9. For the sake of review and for the sake of our guest here today, let's take a moment 
and review what we've learned in Revelation. Okay? Many people have gotten in trouble trying to interpret this book because they've ignored the outline for the book that Jesus gives us in chapter 1, verse 19. It's a very simple outline. We don't need to interpret or outline this book in any other way. Jesus commissioned John to write three things. Chapter 1, verse 19, write the things you have seen, past tense. Write the things which are, present tense, from John's perspective. And the things which shall be hereafter. That word hereafter means following the things which are. The book breaks down very nicely. The things which John had seen was chapter 1. The vision of Christ glorified as the head of the church and as king. And then John is given this commission to write the things that are. Chapter 2 and chapter 3, the letters to the seven churches. Those were churches that existed in John's day, literal churches. They also represent types of churches that exist all throughout the church age. But even more profound, they were a prophetic picture of all of history moving forward from John, the time he received that vision, until the end of the church age, which I believe terminates with the rapture of the church. The things which are the church age, those are the letters to the seven churches. I talked about how if you look back at church history, you see prophecy unfolded. It fits it to a T as these letters are progressively revealed. And then we get to chapter 4 all the way to the end of the book. Those are the things which shall be hereafter. Hereafter, after what? The church age. I find it very interesting that the first verse in chapter 4, John hears a voice from heaven. He sees a door and he hears a voice that says, Come up here. And immediately he's in the throne room of God. So at the end of the church age... Chapter 4, verse 1, we have a type of the rapture of the church. John caught up to heaven. In chapters 4 and 5, he's in the throne room of God. The church is there, as indicated by the, the um, first person pronouns. And then what we have is the Lamb that was slain, presented and adored by the host of heaven in the church as the kinsman redeemer. And then he's given this book because he's the only one worthy to open it. And we talked about how that seven-sealed scroll is the title deed of the earth. The title deed of the earth that was given to Adam's stewardship in the Garden of Eden. He betrayed it or sold it to Satan. Satan has been the god of this world ever since. Christ is the kinsman redeemer. And he is given the title deed of the earth. And he's coming to claim what is rightfully his all under the sovereignty of a governing God. So we have this presentation of the title deed of the earth. Then we get into chapter 6, and the Lamb begins to open that deed. And each one of the seals, each seal that is open brings judgment to this earth. You have the seven seal judgments. Okay? In Revelation chapter 6, the seventh seal is the seven trumpet judgments, which we see in Revelation Chapter 8 and 9. The seventh trumpet is the seven vile judgments of God's wrath that we will see later in the book. So it's all connected to the Lamb opening the title deed. And then when He returns again in chapter 19, He will publicly read it aloud and take back what is rightfully His, this earth. Something that was done at the cross. He became kinsman redeemer at the cross and now He's coming back to 
to, uh, to, to uh, claim what is rightfully His. So, we're in that context. Chapter 8, in chapter 7, we had that parenthesis that God seals the 144,000 witnesses of the descendants of Israel. These are people that God will use during the period of tribulation after the church has been raptured out to finish the job that the church started. The church started the job of taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. The seal of Israel will complete it. And then we saw that great multitude, the fruit of that preaching was souls, those Gentile souls who will come to Christ during those difficult days. Those are called the tribulation saints, the gleanings of the great harvest that takes place at the rapture. I believe all of these things lay out very nicely. They're consistent with scriptural testimony. And in my opinion, there's no other way to interpret these things in Revelation, but simply and literally. With the judgments that start in chapter 6, the sealed judgments, we have a rising crescendo of judgment. So God doesn't just start out wiping everything out. It starts small and it crescendos. Another testimony to His mercy, giving men opportunity, men and nations opportunity to repent. And we'll see this at the end of chapter 9. We'll see an astounding picture of man's depravity. Even when confronted with this terrible, terrible judgment, they will not repent. Judgment by natural phenomena, we see the four horses, the rise of Antichrist, war, economic collapse, tragic death. These are all things or consequences that happen as a result of man's action and his foolishness. That's the first six seal judgments. Okay, So, beginning with the opening of that seal, we enter into that tribulation period. We talked about Daniel's 70th week. That seven year period in which God will complete His work of prophecy with regard to Israel. And then at the beginning of that 70th week, we see these judgments begin to happen. The sixth seal is a transition, I believe, but from the first half of that tribulation into the second half that Jesus called the Great Tribulation. And with the opening of the seventh seal, we have the trumpet judgments. And then you see this crescendo increasing. What were judgments by natural phenomena with the first six seals become with the seventh seal and the seven trumpets judgment by supernatural phenomena. And these can further be broken down as the first four trumpets, which we've already talked about. The first four trumpets were a bombarding, per se, from heaven above. Supernatural phenomena, bombarding from heaven above. We had the first four trumpets. The first one was what? Hell and fire mixed with blood. This was a direct attack against one of the gods of modern men. That God being Mother Nature. A direct attack in which God showed His superiority. The second trumpet was the great mountain falling into the sea and destroying a third of the world's navies. A direct attack through volcanic cataclysm against another of man's modern day gods. Military might. God demonstrating His power just like He did over the gods of Egypt with those plagues. Then we have the third trumpet judgment. That star, a fragment of a star falling from heaven and falling on the fresh water and making it bitter and undrinkable. 
a direct attack against a third of man's modern day gods, modern, modern day gods the city and city life. Cities can't exist without fresh water supply. And when fresh water supply is tainted, cities fall apart. Then we have the fourth trumpet judgment. At the end of, uh, here at the end of Revelation chapter 8. And in this judgment, a third part of the sun, a third part of the night, a third part of the stars and the moon is darkened. And what it means is the calendar is all messed up. The seasons become all messed up. What does that do? That's a direct attack against probably one of the primary gods of modern day times in our lives, and that's the personal schedule. When the seasons get mixed up, a man's personal schedule goes down the garbage can. And he can't do the things he wants to do. So these are judgments that are supernatural with the first four trumpets, and they're a bombarding from heaven above. Hell and fire bombarding down from heaven. A mountain volcanic cataclysm falling into the sea. A star falling to the earth, wormwood. And the heavenly bodies darkened so that the seasons are messed up. Coming into chapter 9, after this warning of the three trumpets yet to sound, the three woes, as they are called, the crescendo continues to increase. And here in chapter five or 9, we have two more trumpet judgments. The fifth and the sixth trumpets. A bombarding from the heavens above becomes an unmasking from hell below. So it's very neat and orderly how all of these things happen. These are not random judgments. Natural phenomena to supernatural phenomena. It starts with judgment coming down from heaven above. And now we have the fifth and sixth seals, and as we'll, or the fifth and sixth trumpets, and as we'll see, this is judgment or an unleashing or an unveiling of wrath from hell below. And then we get to the trumpet judgment number seven that we see at the end of chapter 11 in chapters 15 and 16, and this is a spilling from God Himself. So note the rising crescendo of judgment. Natural phenomena to supernatural phenomena. Judgment from pouring down from heavens above, unleashing from hell below, and then finally, with the seventh trumpet, which are the seven vials of God's wrath, God spilling it directly Himself. It's very orderly. God does all things, even judgment, decently and in order. Something that makes Him very different from the gods of men. So, here we are, beginning with this unmasking from hell below. The first four trumpet judgments are passed, a warning has been given, and now we come to chapter 9, the fifth trumpet, the first woe. I believe that we are in the latter half of the tribulation period here, after Antichrist has unmasked himself for the world, after he has betrayed the Jewish people in the midpoint of the tribulation, and we are in a time of awful judgment in which there will be an unleashing of the things that men speak quietly about today. Chapter 9. Let's just read this. The first 12 verses. We'll read about the fifth trumpet today. And the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star fall from heaven unto the earth, and to him was given the key of the bottomless pit. That word bottomless pit in the Greek is the abyss. Abusos, where we get the word abyss. And he opened the bottomless pit, and there arose a smoke out of the pit, as the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened by reason of the smoke of the pit. 
And there came out of the smoke locusts upon the earth, and into them was given power. Now kids, some of this stuff is scary. And it ought to be. Come to Jesus. You don't have to worry about it. Okay? And there came out of the smoke locusts upon the earth, and unto them was given power, as the scorpions of the earth have power. And it was commanded them that they should not hurt the grass of the earth, neither any green thing, neither any tree, what locusts typically go after, but only those men which have not the seal of God in their foreheads. Who are those that have the seal of God in their foreheads at this point in Revelation? The Jewish witnesses. And to them it was given that they should not kill them, but that they should be tormented five months. And their torment was as the torment of a scorpion when he strikes a man. And in those days shall men seek death and shall not find it, and shall desire to die, and death shall flee from them. And the shapes of the locusts were like unto horses prepared unto battle. And on their heads were as it were the crowns like gold, and their faces were as the faces of men. And they had hair as the hair of women, and their teeth was as the teeth of lions. And they had breastplates as, it, as, breastplates, as it were breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was as the sound of chariots of many horses running to battle. And they had tails like unto scorpions, and their stings were in their tails, and their power was to hurt men five months. And they had a king over them, which is the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name in the Hebrew tongue is Abaddon, but in the Greek tongue hath his name Apollyon. Both of these words simply mean destroyer. In Hinduism, he is known as Shiva the destroyer. One woe is past, and behold, there come two more, two woes more hereafter. Let's pray and ask the Lord to bless this reading of His Word. Thank You, Lord, for Your Word this morning. There's some very serious and frightening things in Your Word. I just pray that through them You will teach us and draw us closer to You. Thank You, Lord, for the testimony of Scripture which says that those who wait for Jesus, the Son of God from heaven, have been delivered from the wrath to come. That great promise given to the Thessalonians by Paul the Apostle. So Lord, we thank You that You have delivered us, Jesus, from the wrath to come. May it be used as we study it to compel us to share the Gospel and warn others that they might too escape. In Jesus' name, Amen. So here we have the first woe, or the fifth trumpet judgment, what I would call infernal torment. A judgment of infernal torment coming straight from hell. Let's look at verse 1. Let's look at this fallen star here. We have, in this judgment, we have three things to consider. The fallen star, the ascending smoke in verse 2, and the locust-like creatures described in verse 3 to the end of the chapter. Let's look at verse 1 again. And the angel sounded, and I saw a star fall from heaven unto the earth. Now the sixth seal described in chapter 6 and the fourth trumpet in chapter 8 involved stars. They were part of the judgment. These were natural stars or fragments of stars burning out or falling to the earth. However, here with this reference to star, I believe we have a symbolic reference. Now I've said many times the book of Revelation as the Bible is to be interpreted literally in its context. To interpret something literally and in its context doesn't deny that there are symbols. The Bible is full of symbolic pictures. 
Even Abraham's children through Hagar and uh, Sarah are an allegory of the law versus Jesus Christ and grace. They're an allegory that we can see because the Word of God reveals it to be. So there are plenty of symbols in the Word of God. We just have to be careful when we interpret these symbols to understand them as such because the Bible declares them to be or shows them to be. And we have to be careful not to ignore the immediate context given as well as the entire scriptural context. When we look at this entire chapter and other references throughout Scripture, it's clear to me that this star is not a literal star. It's a reference to, a, uh, to an angelic being. So, I think we can, have, we can pause and have a brief lesson here about properly interpreting a biblical symbol. Okay? Brief lesson here. Biblical symbols are properly interpreted first when we look at the immediate context. What about the immediate context tells us this is not a literal star? Well, let's look in the, the verse itself. I saw a star fall from heaven unto the earth, and to him was given the key to the bottomless pit. There's your answer right there. That's how we know it's a symbol. Because it's spoken of as a person. That's the immediate context. If that wasn't there, and the actions of a person weren't there, as is the case with the sixth seal in chapter 8, we'd be talking about a star or fragments of a star as we see in the heavens. Go to the end of chapter 11. We're still in the immediate... Con I mean, I'm sorry. Go to verse 11 in chapter 9. We're still in the immediate context. It says these scorpions had, or these uh, locusts had a king over them, which is the angel of the bottomless pit. So no, this star, the one that unlocks the pit, is called the angel of the bottomless pit in verse 11. So we see how the immediate context shows us this is a symbol and shows us how to interpret it. First lesson, immediate context. Secondly, we have to look at the scriptural context. Is there other scriptural precedent for a star referring to a spiritual being? The only reason I'm breaking this down right now is because it's an interesting lesson about how to properly interpret Scripture with Scripture. Somebody turn this morning to Job chapter 38, verse 7. Uh, Daniel, will you turn there? Jason, can you turn to Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12? And Jim, if you'll look at Luke chapter 10, verse 18. Again, this is just a lesson in how to properly interpret biblical symbols. We've got to look at the immediate context and then the distant context or the scriptural context. Let's see what these other passages have to say. Job 38, 7. When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. This is talking about the days of creation. The sons of God are clearly references to angels. Even Satan is called one of these in the book of Job when he comes before the throne of God. So sons of God are a reference to the heavenly host. And here in this verse, they're also called morning stars. When the morning stars sang for glory and the sons of God rejoiced. In, cre in the days of creation, after God made the angels, they rejoiced and sang. So we have a reference to morning stars referring to sp spiritual beings. So this, there's another precedent for that in the Scriptures. Isaiah 14, 12. How 
How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? That's that great passage in Isaiah that looks past the literal king being addressed in typical Old Testament dual fulfillment prophecy and points to Lucifer and his spiritual fall from heaven. So Lucifer is described as having fallen from heaven. Well, what does that word Lucifer mean? It means light-bearing one. It's a reference to, to the light of a star. You know, I've seen it interpreted morning star, which is not exactly correct. It's more the sun of the morning or a reference to what we see when we look up in the morning sky and we see the planet Venus, which looks like a bright star. Okay? So Lucifer's name itself uh, is tied to the, the shining of a star. And he's described here as falling from heaven. Okay? Luke chapter 10, verse 18. Okay, Jesus is referring to the fall of Satan from heaven. He said he saw Satan fall as lightning from heaven. Okay, it was quick and it was abrupt. With the light power of lightning, Jesus saw that. Satan fall from heaven. So when you put all of these scriptural precedents together, the immediate context and the scriptural context, I think it's easy to properly interpret this symbol. Not only do we see that it's not a literal star, the immediate context tells us it's an angelic being, but the rest of Scripture's testimony indicate the identity of this star fall from heaven. I believe it's Lucifer. I believe it's Satan himself. And I believe it coincides with what we see is going to happen in Revelation chapter 12, which is a thematic backdrop, letting us know what's going on behind the scenes with the major characters of the tribulation. Jesus' statement in Luke 10 I find very interesting because not only does it refer to Satan's fall, but it is a subtle declaration by the Son of Man to the people He was preaching to concerning His deity, concerning His sovereignty, and concerning the truth that Jesus Christ was before all things, and that Jesus Christ is over all things, by Jesus Christ, all things were created and He sees all things at one time. You see, Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Okay? Like man, unregenerate man has two falls, two deaths. He's born in sin, a spiritual fall in the Garden of Eden, and he dies in his sins, a physical fall into hell and judgment. Satan had two falls. His first fall was his spiritual fall. He spiritually fell like lightning from heaven. This happened in the distant past at some point shortly after creation between the beginning when God created the heavens and the earth and when Adam and Eve fell. Satan spiritually fell like lightning from heaven. Exactly what's described there in Isaiah chapter 14 and also in the book of Ezekiel. But Satan has another fall a yet future fall, and that's a fall from heaven, physically. You see, Satan has access to heaven. He's the accuser of the brethren. Just as he does in the book of Job, he goes before God and accuses the brethren day and night. God allows access for His purposes. But there's coming a day, which I believe coincides with the midpoint of the tribulation, when Satan will be cast out of heaven physically, just as he fell spiritually. 
And so when Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven, He was referring to an event in the distant past, showing His pre-eternality, and He was simultaneously referring to an event at that point in the distant future. So that statement alone was a subtle declaration that He was a God of history that saw it all at one time. And perhaps that's why the Jews got so angry. You see, when they heard these things, they knew Jesus was referring to His omniscience. They knew He was making Himself equal with God when He called Himself the Son of God. That's why they picked up stones to stone Him. You know, the Muslims will always say, I've talked to so many of them, and these guys can bear witness when we went preaching and witnessing at Dhaka University in Bangladesh. There's nowhere in the Bible where Jesus claimed to be God. How can you say He's God? The Son of God doesn't mean He was God. And it's like, you foolish people. The, the folks in the crowd tried to kill Him for saying these things. They understood Him to mean that He was making Himself equal with God. That's willful ignorance to say that Jesus never claimed to be God. You've never read the Scriptures if you honestly believe that. And if you honestly believe that Him calling Himself the Son of God was not Him making Himself equal with God, then you're ignorant and have not read the Scriptures. And in this passage in Luke 10, Jesus is declaring Himself omniscient over all history because He claims to see an event in the distant past and one in the distant future at the same time. I just find that interesting. And we'll talk about that more later when we get into Revelation chapter 12. So, what we have here is a spiritual being fallen from heaven to earth. Who or what is this? I believe the identity of this star is Lucifer. And in looking at the immediate and scriptural context, we see how to properly interpret a biblical symbol. This fall here... Um, well, let, let me back up a moment. Really, I've looked at several different commentaries and commentators, and people usually come to one of two interpretations here. One of those is, as I've already said, this is a reference to Satan. But I've seen other solid commentators teach that this star is not Satan at all, but that it is the same angel from heaven mentioned in chapter 20, verses 1 through 3. And the only reason I mention that is just as... Uh, talking about star gives us an interesting lesson in how to properly interpret a symbol. Look at the, looking at these interpretations given by sound biblical men is also another lesson that you can't blindly follow a man because men can be wrong. But let's turn to Revelation 20, chapter, uh, chapter 20, verse 1 through 3 for a moment because we have another reference to this bottomless pit. This is after the return of Christ when Satan is bound in this same bottomless pit that is opened here in chapter 9. He's bound for a thousand years during the millennial reign. John says, I saw an angel come down from heaven having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand and he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan and bound him a thousand years and cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal upon him that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years should be fulfilled, and after that he must be loosed a little season. There's no reason to interpret thousand years there to mean anything other than what it says. Thousand years, by the way. But we have an angel, an angelic being from heaven, coming down with a key to the bottomless pit and casting Satan into it. And so I've often heard people say, well, this star in chapter 9 has to be that same angel because they have the same job and the same key. And Why would God give Satan a key to the bottomless pit is usually the reasoning behind 
that interpretation. So in other words, according to this, you have this pit opened in chapter 9, you have it shut back up by the same person in chapter 20, and then it's opened again at the end of the millennium as Satan is loosed for a little season. One of the persons that I respect greatly, he died many years ago and has written some great books on properly interpreting Scripture. One of the persons that holds to this view, which I believe is wrong, is Clarence Larkin. Dispensational truth, rightfully dividing the word of truth. In fact, we're going to use a chart when we get to it that he has provided. Lots of great insight into the Word of God. His point is, the work of both angels is the same in chapter 9 and chapter 20. Why would God entrust the key of this bottomless pit to Satan himself? And then he goes on to claim that this Apollyon is one of the creatures confined in the bottomless pit and not the one that opens it. This makes sense, I guess. And I use Larkin a lot. I like his works. It was amazing the things he saw in Scripture prior to Israel being regathered into the land in the early 1900s. But the lesson here is you can't blindly follow anyone. I don't care who it is. I don't care if it's the most well-respected preacher, doctrinally speaking, on the radio or the television. They can't be blindly followed. Men like uh, Adrian Rogers or Paul Washer or uh, uh, J. Vernon McGee and others that have been well-respected for so long can't be blindly followed. We always have to interpret the words of men and judge the words of men by the Word of God. And men can be wrong. Maybe some of the things I've interpreted here have been wrong. That's why it's up to you, the priesthood of the believer, to study the Scriptures yourself. Me spoon-feeding you the Word of God so you can go about your life and have me do your job for you is not the purpose of preaching the Word in church. It's not to spoon-feed you. Our responsibility collectively as a church and as the body of Christ is to study the Word together and to interpret it together. That's why I invite anyone in here, if they have a disagreement or a question, to talk to me about it and we'll look at it. I'm not above having questions asked of me. But I believe Larkin is wrong here. I believe this star in chapter 9 is Satan. I've shown you there in chapter 9 how he's called the angel of the bottomless pit in verse 11. And there are some things that are very different between what's described in chapter 9 verse 1 and what's described in chapter 20 verse 1. So the side issue here is that don't blindly follow any commentator. Interpret biblical scriptures properly or or symbolic references in the scriptures properly, properly by looking at the immediate and the scriptural context and don't blindly follow any commentator. One of the reasons why we move through this book so slow is because there's always these important practical lessons we can get from these examples. It's not just about prophecy. Does that make sense? Now, I disagree with Larkin on his interpretation of chapter 9, verse 1. However, his draft or his chart about the underworld is very interesting and we'll look at that later. Larkin's very solid and I'll continue to use his works as I do the works of other men that God has used to help us understand the Scriptures. Just because they get something wrong or I believe they get something wrong doesn't mean you should throw them out unless it's the Gospel that's gotten wrong. If the Gospel's wrong, throw it out! Everybody was so gaga-goo-goo several years ago about these great new preachers that can really appeal to the emotions. People like Rick Warren or people like Rob Bell. Look at those men today. 
The fruit of their ministries was the proof that in the beginning we should be concerned. Man, if you spoke a word negative about those two men when they first come out, Christians would criticize you as being so pharisaical and judgmental. The very first NUMA video I ever watched from Rob Bell years ago, it took me five seconds into that video, I knew there was a problem. It was called the bullhorn guy. He was talking about people like me. And I could see that man was wicked from that first video. You say, how presumptuous. We'll just look at the fruit today. What was the guy with Oprah last week? She was introducing him as starting his own self-help show. And if you listen to the garbage he says, it's nothing biblical at all anymore. Rick Warren's purpose-driven life. Everybody went crazy over that. All you have to do is read it closely. His chapter on baptism had some serious problems. Look at the man today. Look at the man today. He's joking with Muslims and Catholics and, 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 and talking about all these religions coming together because we worship the same God. Okay? He's veered from scriptural truth. We have to have discernment and be willing to call things as they are and judge the things of men. The spirit of the prophets is subject to the prophets. That means when you claim God is speaking to you, or God has told you to do something, it's the duty of your brothers and sisters in Christ to question that. It's the duty of them to question that. This idea that God told me this, and it, it seems to disagree with the principles of Scripture, or it brings confusion in the church, this idea that I have no right to question you, that I'm just supposed to accept, well, God told you that, and go on with it, is ludicrous. It's entirely against what Paul the Apostle said to do in the church when people make claims about the Lord. We judge things by the Scripture and the spirit of the prophet is subject to the judgment of the prophet. We should have been looking at these things, these men, the Bells and the Warrens and others very closely when they first come out instead of following blindly. Never blindly follow a man. The Bible says it's better to put trust in God than to put confidence in a man. That doesn't mean God doesn't use men, but we need to put them in their proper place. Ourselves included. Now, this interpretation that chapter 9 verse 1 is a revelation or, or is, is a reference to Satan is usually perpetrated or claimed by those who say the KJV is wrong here in the way this has been translated. Okay, that's usually where that interpretation comes. I believe it's referring to Satan, but I don't believe the KJV is wrong. Okay? I believe the King James Bible was translated by men who feared God and some who had seen their own parents and grandparents give their lives for the Lord. I believe God has blessed it and we can trust it. Okay? And it is not the product of copyright laws. It's not the product of men having to change things so they can get their payouts. It's not the product of watering down things in the Greek and Hebrew so we can excuse our sin. But this word, this, this sentence here, the fifth angel sounded and I saw a star fall from heaven into the earth. It's a present indefinite. John said, I saw a star fall from heaven. The argument is that's an improper translation and what it should say is I saw a fallen star from heaven. And so the modern versions like the ESV will say something like I saw a fallen star from heaven. Okay, a fallen star is Satan. And so usually that interpretation is linked with those who would question the translation of the Scriptures here. 
what we have, this word translated fall, this is another important lesson here. Sometimes the translators who accuse the King James of being wrong don't necessarily have an ignorance concerning the Greek and the Hebrew. They just have ignorance concerning the English language that they're translating into. So this is not an error in the Scriptures. What we have in the Greek is the perfect tense. How do we communicate the perfect tense in English? We say, I have come to church. Okay, Not, I came to church. I have come to church. Or, I had come to church. That's the past part, uh, participle. Or, past perfect. Why would we use a tense like that in English? Is it to emphasize the action? Or is it to emphasize the action and the results of that action? We use the perfect tense, kids. It's an English lesson for you to communicate the results. Not all actions exist in and of themselves. Many of them exist with results. If I tell you, I came to church, that basically says I physically came to church. But if I say, I have come to church, what that communicates is that I physically came and then I experienced something while I was there. The perfect tense. In Greek, um, this is a perfect participle. Okay? A lot of times the problem is not with the King James translation. It's a problem, or of the Greek, it's a problem with the ignorance of translators concerning the English language. Anybody knows that in English, if you know English, and many people don't nowadays, but anybody worth his salt when it comes to the English language knows that the present indefinite tense is a completely legitimate way to communicate a perfect participle in the context of results. What in the world does that mean? I thought I was coming to church. Not an English class. Sorry. The perfect tense. Completed action in the past with present results. Focus on a resultant state, not the occurrence itself. I can use the perfect tense or I can use the present indefinite in a context to communicate that. Let me give you an example. I was just overseas in India. We spent a good amount of time in India, Nepal, and Bangladesh in some remote areas preaching the Word of God and discipling brethren. It was an incredible trip. I shared about that last week. But while we were in Ladakh, Ricky and I traveled overland out of Leh back toward Delhi by way of a place called Srinagar. Srinagar is near Pakistan. It's a place that's very security-tight in India because there's been a lot of terrorism and there's a lot of fundamentalist Muslims in this area. But Srinagar had been disrupted or damaged badly earlier in the fall by terrible flooding. There was unseasonable rain in the rain shadow of the Himalayas sometime in August or September, and it brought terrible flooding to Srinagar. As a result of that, many, many miles away, 200 plus miles away in Leh, we had no internet access for an entire month because the one broadband cable that came from Srinagar to Leh had been damaged. And so that flood affected the whole area. And so Ricky and I went through Srinagar. We did a little sowing of gospel seeds. And we saw the extent of the damage. Okay, I showed you all a picture last week where you could see the water level up past the second floor of a house. And there was great destruction. So I could describe to you my visit to Srinagar and the flood in a couple of ways. I could say, I saw a flood-damaged Srinagar. Okay, I saw a flood-damaged Srinagar. What is that? That's a past participle. Just like we have 
adjectival participle simple just like we have here in the Greek. I speak as if something happened in the past. Or I could say that this exact same thing using a present indefinite tense and it will communicate the same idea. I saw the flood come to Schrodinger. So if I make that statement, you don't necessarily interpret that to mean I actually saw the waters coming. The context would tell you I saw the results. So, I'm using a present indefinite verb, come, in a context that means the same thing as a past participle. Flood damaged Schrodinger. Present indefinite to communicate a past event and the present results that go with it. That's exactly what's happening here with the King James translation versus the way it's been translated in other versions. Does that, am, am I totally confusing everyone? <laughs> the point is, the, it, the King James translation here, using a present indefinite, communicates the exact same thing as using a past adjectival participle. Well, it's the same thing. It's not wrong. So the King James is not wrong here. In this case, neither is the ESV in terms of a fallen star from heaven. If you look at the rest of the verse, however, the ESV gets really off base because it adds words that aren't even in the Greek. It adds the word trumpet. It adds the word shaft. These are nowhere in the Greek text. And all this is is words added to make sure there's a certain percentage of difference from prior translations so the producers or the translators can get their patent and their royalties according to the derivative copyright law. That's all that is. A lot of times the differences in scriptural translations aren't about some new improved way of translating an old language. It's the product of we've got to make it a little bit different so we can satisfy the derivative copyright law and get our royalties. It's the same reason why the college football playoff today won't be decided by who are the four best teams. It will be decided by which matchups will bring the most money, the, the widest TV audience, and what matchups will guarantee a final that will involve the entire country. Money governs everything. And so don't put your hope in anything, not even a sports result, as being truly legitimate, because it's not. So, to argue that this star refers to Satan and his fall from heaven is not to agree with other similar commentators that interpret the passage this way, that the King James text is wrong. I don't believe the text is wrong here. I just believe this is a proper interpretation. Let's look at a few differences between 9-1 and 21. John says he saw a star fall from heaven. John in chapter 20 said he saw a star come down from heaven. Okay? Fall and come down. That's two totally different word pictures there. One is negative. One is positive. Every word that we speak in our language has a dictionary meaning, a denotative meaning. And every word has a connotative meaning. That's the imagery that surrounds that word. That's why we need to be careful sometimes when we speak because though the words we use might have the proper dictionary meaning, they may communicate an opposite meaning of what we intend through their connotation. Okay? But the connotation is very different. One is negative, one is positive. In chapter 9, a star was given 
the key to the bottomless pit. In chapter 20, John says he saw an angel having or having taking or having possession of a key. To be given something or to have something has a different connotation. It could have overlap in the meaning, but one is one is has a different connotation than the other. One being more positive, one being more negative. Now, it's interesting if we go back over the scriptures we've studied, there are several entities that were given things in the book of Revelation. The first seal judgment, John looked and behold a white horse and him that sat upon him, he had a crown and a bow. And it says that what? Chapter 6. A white horse had a crown, had a bow, and a crown was what? Was given unto him. Authority was given. He didn't have it of his own. It was given to him. Same thing here in chapter 9. This star didn't have this key of his own. It was given to him. Okay? The same exact rendering as we see in chapter 6, verse 2, the reference to Antichrist. And then you look at chapter 9, verse 11, and it says that the king over these locusts is the angel of the bottomless pit. Well, who is the angel of the bottomless pit? The star falling from heaven. It only makes sense. So I don't know how you could interpret it otherwise and ignore chapter 9, verse 11. This star that falls from heaven is Lucifer, is Apollyon, is the deceiver, is the destroyer. So Apollyon, Abaddon, is just another name for Satan. It means destroyer. Satan has many names, my friends. He has many names. Satan, the devil, Lucifer. In the Islamic world, his, uh, uh, um, he's known as Allah or God. I'm sorry. Allah of the Quran is Satan of the Bible. He's not Jehovah of the Bible. He's Satan of the Bible. He's the angel of light that deceives. The word Allah may mean God in the Arabic language, but Allah as defined by the Quran looks more like Satan of the Bible in terms of his deceptive angel of light powers than he does Jehovah God. I would say that Antichrist really is more a picture of Allah than even Satan. And that's why the Muslims will follow him when he comes. Shiva is the name for Satan in the Hindu language, the patron deity of Nepal where we labor and work. The Shiva means destroyer. And then of course Apollyon and Abaddon as well. I believe this star is Satan. He was fallen from heaven in such a sense that John could say, I saw a star fall from heaven. And he was allowed to have a key to a room, per se, in the underworld. The angel in chapter 20, verse 1, has possession of the same key. You know, when you, when you have a business and you have multiple people in ownership or in authority that come, in and, come, that come and go, there's many keys given to rooms and businesses, okay? I possess a key to the Christian Aikido Association in Granite Falls, North Carolina. It's a key to a room that opens up into that dojo. I'm not the only one that possesses that. Numerous people possess it. There are keys that give access to the whole building. I don't have that key. But I have a key. Doesn't mean it's the only key. Doesn't mean I'm the only one that has it. <coughs> the fallen star was allowed to have a key to a room the, same, the angel in chapter 20, verse 1, had possession of the same key. However, do not forget it is Christ Jesus that owns the keys to the whole place. He has the master set. So to me, it doesn't, 
doesn't seem strange that Satan would be given a key. Satan was allowed to test Job. Satan was allowed to do other things throughout history and many things in the book of Revelation <coughs> on a chain per se for God's purposes. But God that controls it, He governs everything. Even Satan, even these locusts that come out of the pit. <coughs> Satan unleashes them. But did you know that this same army of locusts elsewhere in the Scripture is specifically called God's army? It's an army from hell, but it's God's army because He controls it. Now, you may not be able to handle that spiritually. That may make you angry in your spirit that I would suggest such a thing. But God, my friends, controls it all. He's the author of all things. And even evil is subject to His eternal plans and purposes. He controls it. Why does God allow it? That's been a question of the great sages down through the ages. The point is not why. The point is, He does. <coughs> and the point is, in the end, righteousness wins. Sin is put down. That's why God had to reveal Himself to us. If He hadn't revealed Himself to us, we couldn't understand it. So He gave a special revelation. Christ, however, has the keys of the whole place, the Master set... Chapter 1, verse 18 of Revelation, it says this, I am He that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of hell and death. So there's no contradiction here. This is Satan. He's given a key to the bottomless pit, and he's allowed to unleash what's in there. Okay? Isaiah chapter 14 describes Satan as a light-bearing one that fell from heaven. I've taught and we've, we've spoken about how I believe Satan was not an angel per se like Michael and Gabriel. He was one of the cherubim that was in the presence of God's throne, just like the cherubim we see described in Revelation chapter 4. He had direct access to God's throne and was probably the head of those uh, angelic beings. Satan fell from heaven. He desired to be on the throne that he was commissioned to protect. And as a result, he fell spiritually from heaven and we'll see physically as that great dragon in Revelation 12. And it is interesting how these creatures unleashed from the abyss are described as composite creatures, very similar to the way the cherubim are described in Ezekiel in, in Revelation. Uh, they're almost like the anti-cherubim. These are not literal locusts. They're infernal cherubim that come to torment men. We'll talk about that later. But this is Satan, and I believe this fall that John sees here is occasioned by what we see later in chapter 12. And we'll, we'll close here today, but turn to chapter 12 for a moment. Once we get through... Chapter 11, what we're going to see is the announcement of the seven trumpets. And then we have another one of those parentheses. And so if you want to look at Revelation chronologically, you'll go to Revelation 11, 19, and then you'll jump to chapter 15, verse 8. Because everything in between is another parenthesis. I've explained how the book moves chronologically, but at different points... We back away from the chronology to get a thematic backdrop of things that are happening behind the scenes during this entire period. Chapter 7 was the sealing of the witnesses and their gospel preaching and the salvation of the tribulation saints that's happening in the backdrop of all of this. Once we get to chapter 12, 
we have another thematic backdrop that includes chapter 12, chapter 13, and chapter 14 in which we have character sketches of the major players, uh, uh, spiritually speaking, during this time of tribulation. Some have called this the seven personages where we learn about Israel, Satan, Christ, the archangel Michael, the Antichrist or the beast out of the sea and the false prophet, the beast out of the earth. And so we have a character sketch of these major spiritual characters. And during this character sketch we see of Satan, the dragon, in chapter 12, it says this in verses 9 through 12. There was a war in heaven. It says the great dragon, which was Satan, was cast out of heaven. That old serpent called the devil and Satan. This is the very first time in Scripture in Revelation 12 where Satan himself is linked to the serpent in the Garden of Eden. He's never called a serpent anywhere else and the serpent is not called Satan in Genesis chapter 3. But right here it comes full circle and his identity is given even though we know the identity. But that old serpent... Satan called the devil, which deceives the whole world. He was cast out of heaven into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now is come salvation and strength in the kingdom of our God and the power of His Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down. This must be a future event. This must not have happened at the cross because there were no brethren you know, in terms of the church at the cross. The church didn't start till Pentecost. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down which accused them before our God day and night and they overcame Him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony and they loved not their lives unto the death. Therefore rejoice you heavens and you that dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth! So we have woe to the inhabitants of the earth. And here in chapter 9 we have woe, the first woe. Why? For the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, because he knoweth that he hath but a short time. This falling from heaven, this opening of the abyss, is occasioned by the war in heaven and Satan's casting out that takes place in the thematic backdrop of chapter 12. I believe that this casting out is what also occasions the transformation of Antichrist into the, the well-respected world leader, the friend of the Jews, into the betrayer and the one who sets himself up as God during the midpoint of that tribulation. This in chapter 9 on earth, the fifth trumpet, the sixth trumpet, this is the aftermath of the war in heaven described. It's the results on earth of what takes place in the chapter 12 parenthesis. And it's the aftermath of Satan's access to heaven taken away. His termination of his ability to accuse the brethren. Satan's spiritual fall took place in the beginning. His physical fall takes place in which his access is restricted. He's kicked out. I think we also see this in the parable that Jesus tells about the wedding feast. I believe the bride is in the chamber, the wedding chamber with Jesus during this tribulation, the wedding feast. And Jesus says that the, the bridegroom looks up and he sees someone in the presence of the guest that doesn't have a wedding garment. And the, and the bridegroom says, Friend, where have you come? Where are your wedding garments? And the guy doesn't have an answer and he's kicked out of the wedding feast and cast out. I believe that one without the wedding garment was the accuser of the brethren 
who had been in and out of heaven accusing the brethren, and he attempted to attend the wedding feast, and then he was cast out. And when he was cast out, he's come to earth, and he's still allowed the authority to unleash havoc. So what's interesting, and we'll end with this, even Satan's wrath is God's judgment on wicked men. Even Satan's actions and Satan's wrath are judgment from God. They're not judgment independent of God. When we taught some basic theology to the persecuted Christians in the village in Nepal, I talked about the error of religion. The religion speaks of things in terms of dualism. There's good and evil, as if good and evil are on equal planes. And there's uncertainty about what wins out. The Bible's not dualism. It's monotheism. It's Creator God above all things. Good and evil exist below Him. He is independent of these things. And what He desires wins out. What looks like a war to us has already been decided. It's already been decided. So even Satan's wrath is God's judgment on wicked men. After he falls from heaven, he's angry, and God allows him to take that anger out on the inhabitants of the earth. And what does He do? He opens the bottomless pit and unleashes an infernal army of scorpion or locust-like creatures. Okay, I didn't get very far. Hmm. As we read Scriptures and we see examples of lessons that can be practically implied or applied in the study of Scripture, we ought to take time to talk about it. So next week, I'll get into um, this issue of the bottomless pit. It's a very interesting uh, study on what hell is made up of, why it exists, and how it, is, how it prefigures an eternal hell, which we know as the lake of fire. A lot of people say, you know, my life is hell on earth, or this place is hell on earth. There's coming a day when hell will come to earth. And people are ignorant when they make comparisons today or when they joke about hell. They're ignorant when they joke about hell not understanding how full it is of torment. How much better, my friends, to know Christ today and to escape that wrath to come. Alright. Take your outlines and we'll just continue to work through them as the Lord gives leave. We will finish this book at some day, at some point, unless the Lord comes back first, which would be just fine with me, or unless we're all dead in the grave. That could be true too. I could be an old man before we finish, and half of you all be dead. <laughs>